It's episode 85 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast, your weekly Milwaukee Brewers podcast. I'm Steve Garshinsky. With me is J.P. Breen, and back from across the pond is sure. Ryan Top. Yeah. Amy was saying that you were going to kill me for uh, all my British uh, accents and mannerisms now. I was considering giving you a hard time about coming back with a British accent, but then it took us so long to get recording today that I was like, screw it, let's just get this thing going. <laughs> Yes, technical issues have saved me from humiliation. Pretty much. So, uh, yeah, we got a good one today. Again, more baseball, more winning baseball to talk about. And we have a uh, Trenny Kuznarek interview that uh, JP did earlier this week. To uh, That'll be at the end of the, the show. So check that out. JP, what did you think of the interview? Yeah, it was good. Uh, Trenny and I have been trying to connect for quite a while, but she's extremely busy these days. So getting to talk to her while... There was a, a baseball game going on where we were both trying to follow it. Um, it was nice to be able to catch up. It was nice to be able to hear what she's been up to and get her thoughts on what it was like to cover the Brewers in the past and, and also what she's been up to. Yeah. So like I said, I've I've already heard it and it's great. So uh, obviously check that out. I'll put the, uh, the time that interview starts on in the uh, details as well if people want to just get to that part because, I don't know, they're sick of listening to us. I mean, there are probably going to be people that are listening to hear her, not to hear us. And exactly. About the Brewers. Exactly. So, yeah. so uh, you can just skip forward now. Yeah, if you'd like to. Um, otherwise, we'll talk. We'll, we'll focus on Cincinnati and maybe a little bit of this uh, series against the Cubs. <laughs> They've been a tale of two different series. So. I mean, this is last night. So Saturday night's game was the first extended bit of Brewers action I've seen. So really, I didn't see hardly any of opening day. Then we were you know, gone for... The rest of it. And Friday night, I slept through the game because we had been up for like almost 24 hours at that point. So great. So you have some very informed opinions coming up. Oh, it's uh, all stats at this point, really. Yeah. So, hey, you can help fans find the podcast by rating and reviewing Milwaukee's Tailgate on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We want listener questions, so follow Milwaukee's Tailgate on Twitter at MKE Tailgate. Email questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or follow our Facebook page. You can also follow the three of us on Twitter, and you'll find that in our Milwaukee's Tailgate Twitter bio. And finally, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can visit patreon.com slash MKE Tailgate. Our M&B and Ball and Glove patrons receive the monthly Minor League Extra podcast, which should be coming out kind of soon. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, the technical issues today don't make me think this is going to be a great week to do it, but we'll see. Yeah, well, it'll, it'll be happening. So uh, subscribe there and you'll get that as soon as it comes out. Uh, Milwaukee's Tailgate is sponsored in part by Carbon 4 Brewing and their English Shell Malt Bombs and Perfectly Balanced Hop Grenades. You know them for the great beers like Dragon Flute, Block Party, and their flagship Fantasy Factory IPA. Right now, you can go out and get Radicats New England IPA and Fruit Punch Fantasy Factory, which is made with mangoes, pineapple, and blackberry. Carbon 4 has also re-released the boozy, hoppy, and incredibly drinkable Idiot Farm. So go out and pick that one up. Also, get 20% off of merch at the Carbon 4 web store with the promo code MKETailgate. As always, check out Carbon4.com for more information. Carbon 4 beer brilliance and we really should mention that we're drinking outer space right now we are it wasn't in the read but it isn't it's good yes and i'm enjoying it yeah so uh all of those are out right now if you if you can get i i usually there's a total wine nearby that i can go check it out um and they have one of the end caps and there's plenty of stuff like to check out there right now so definitely go do that go to your liquor store or you can go to the brewery if you're in madison if you're in madison yeah so check that out 
Okay, the week started out well. It's been a good week in total, but it started out really well with a, a sweep of the Cincinnati Reds. Um, the mighty Cincinnati Reds? Hey, it doesn't matter who they are. Well, no, it's they were being pumped up before the season quite a bit as you know they made all these moves. They were trying, so everybody kind of has them as their root for the underdog story, and it, they've gotten off to a pretty flat start, so... Well, but I, I think everybody also admitted that, like, this is a Reds team that can score runs, but they're not going to prevent runs. Yeah, in all likelihood. And so, they're not really scoring much early on, but that's partly because they don't have the full complement of, you know, what they're expecting offensively out there. So, yeah, but Scooter um, Jeanette's a big miss. Yes, to to take someone like that out of the lineup is a big miss. Um, okay, so they won a couple of 4-3 games to start out the series, and then we had the big start from Freddie Peralta. Um, he had 11 strikeouts in eight innings, um, and only and the Brewers were able to win one nothing. I was going to say he gave up a run. No, Cincinnati gave up the one run. Um, JP, watching that game, what did you think of Peralta? What was he doing in that game that he didn't do in his first start? I mean, to be frank, he was he was throwing strikes. I mean, it, he didn't do anything different in terms of his, um, you know, in terms of his like arsenal. He didn't do anything in terms of – he had some, like, I guess more well-placed or, like, well-timed, I guess you would say, uh, breaking balls. But he was able to throw strikes. He was able to get guys to, to to swing at his fastball, and he was still extremely fastball heavy. So, for me, it was a lot like when he had his big debut against the Rockies and everybody kind of went nuts. Um, but, I mean, to me, uh, to be honest, like, you can get that from Freddie Peralta any day. It's just, you can also get exactly what was his first start as well. So uh, for me, it was, it was, it was the good form of Freddie Peralta in which he was able to, to throw his fastball. He was able to run it, cut it, you know, it's his fastball does something different every single time. And he was able to throw with pretty good velocity, but he was in the strike zone, which helped him, you know, force guys to have to actually swing at some stuff that they didn't want to have to swing at. Yeah, um, more on the velocity point. His velocity is up from last year. I think I, I'm not sure exactly who it was. Maybe Paul Sporer or True Blood, somebody from BP. I think was talking about the fact that his velocity has ticked up a little bit early on this year from where it was last year. Combine that velocity uptick with his already deceptive delivery and everything. He really could be quite good. So. That's what we're kind of hoping for going forward is that we're going to see more of that and less of that first outing Peralta. But like, the, but his velocity isn't what makes him productive. It has nothing to do with his like in my in my opinion, it's his velocity uptick isn't going to make him more or less successful. He has to throw strikes. If he doesn't throw strikes, he can throw at ninety six all he wants. Sure, I mean a little bit more velocity does help though. It, it gives course, you a little it, bit more margin for error. Of, no, I no, I disagree. I don't agree. If if you're the margin for error it gives you is to be able to miss bats in the zone when you make bad pitches, and that's never been his problem. His problem is throwing strikes, and so I understand that more velocity is a good thing in the abstract. But for him, it's like, you know, it's like saying you know Christian Yelich is gonna you know make a little bit more contact than he has in the past. Like it doesn't. That's not a problem for him. So that like improvement isn't going to be a huge thing. Any improvement in, in power is going to make Yelich, you know, a potential, uh, you know, potentially the best player in the entire league, right? Like it's about where those improvements come and where is it more important to 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 be. It's just like if you say Aroldis Chapman's going to throw his fastball a little bit harder, I don't really care. 
But if he throws more strikes, that's going to make him absolutely unhittable. Well, and the other thing with Peralta is he didn't have any walks in the game. No, yeah. which is fairly rare for him. Exactly. So, I mean, that's where he finds a lot of this that success. We know he can miss bats. Yeah. He just needs... Don't, he does need to be around the zone. I, I, still, I the velocity uptick is helpful. Yeah, whatever. Okay. <laughs> if you want... <laughs> that, was like, that, was like, that was like the sweet like Twitter thing in which you're just like, yeah, but... You know, but still that, and then like stop responding. <laughs> yeah, what? I'm gonna get that last comment in. But um, I'm still, I'm still right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we had a couple more Josh Hader appearances in that series. He closed out uh, both the first and second games of the series. Um, so again, it kind of continued this uh, trend where people could get worried about whatever was happening with Hader at the moment, whether he was being used too much or not enough if his velocity was good or if it was dipping or whatever's going on. Um, is there any reason to be worried about Hater being used on back-to-back games? No. I mean, I don't think you'd want to have him go multiple innings in one of those back-to-back games. If you're going back-to-back games, you'd really like to keep those pitch counts. And I know they did that in the first couple games of the season, but you're able to get away with that a little bit because he was so efficient in that first game against the Cardinals that even though he went two innings, I think it was only like 24 pitches or something. So it really wasn't a, a a huge workload, but generally I think they're going to stay away from using him a whole lot. uh, When he goes multiple innings the next day, like I think basically if he goes multiple innings, you're going to see him have that next day off generally as a rule. Has he gone back to back days in which he pitched more than one inning in both days? No, like I don't. the The time that he went two innings, I don't think he pitched the next day. I think the time he went back to back days is when he only threw the ninth both times. Yeah, Cincinnati, he only pitched an inning in each appearance. Yeah. That was back to back days. He pitched one inning against in the each Cardinals. Game. He went two innings the first game, and didn't he pitch on that Friday game, or was it the Saturday game? It may have I been don't, Saturday game. I think he pitched the Saturday game. I know he went two innings the first the first time, but I'm almost positive he didn't pitch because they lost the second game. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So it was it was the next game that they were leading, which would have been Saturday. Okay. Yeah. I th- I think my own take is that Hater has been so good, everybody is afraid that it might go away. And so there is part of it where I think everybody wants, you know, wants to protect themselves from like getting comfortable that like, you know, this thing that everybody is so proud of, the fact that, you know, that everyone can say that Hater is potentially, you know, I would say comfortably top five reliever in baseball, maybe a little bit more depending on what you're, you know, what you're thinking about these sorts of things. Um, everybody wants to be able to to kind of protect themselves from getting too comfortable in that because as a small market team, I think we all just kind of get comfortable. We all get worried that like we're not supposed to have nice things. And so when we get a nice thing, we're like really afraid that it's going to go away. Well, also um, relievers just break so easily and they, yeah. it comes and goes so fast so often. Right. But I think that's also the other thing, too, right, is that so many people are so there's the opposite where then everybody wants to, like, be the one to criticize everyone from going absolutely, you know, apeshit over over hater. And they want to be able to say, well, you know, I was able to, to I didn't get too high when he was good because I knew that eventually he would break or I, I saw where his velocity went down. So I can you know be the one to tell everyone that 
you know, you shouldn't have actually been as excited as you were. There's a little bit of like the hipster piece in it where everybody <laughs> wants to be able to say, like, I saw this happening before everybody else saw it was happening. Um, and the part that like ends up being missed in all of it is actually like appreciating one of the best relievers in baseball while you're watching him. Right. It doesn't come along all that often that you get to see that. And the Brewers are tremendously fortunate to have it happening right now. And you just hope that it continues on. And you want to be careful with it. You want to make sure that you're not overusing him, overexposing him, especially in times like this, where you legitimately have a big need and the rest of the bullpen is, at best, mediocre. And then there's some some really legitimate problems we'll talk about more later. But it's very tempting to overuse him in a situation like this. And you got to avoid that so that you don't break the golden goose basically you know well but so and i know that steve wants to move on from this but there's two points like number one um we haven't seen any evidence that they're going to overuse him like at what at some point like it becomes this fear that you don't really have any evidence to be worried about um well i think there was some overuse early last year when no, they were in, when no. Corey Knebel was down last year, he no. pitched a lot in April and May, and then they backed off of him after that. They didn't even throw him on back-to-back days. In April, May last year, he was used they did it like, heavily. They, they no, no, I disagree. I disagree with that, ex- <laughs> like extremely. Okay, um, but the uh, the other piece to to think about too is like the the rhetoric around. Josh Hader and like having somebody so good on the team and all of this just constant worry every single time he's out there and like contrast it to Christian Yelich who like is obviously one of the, the top t- the top players in the NL if not the top player in the NL right now and nobody's worried about him everyone's just like no he's like he's really good well, right? that's like that's also a position player thing. Right. No, nobody what, worries about position players ever getting ground to a nub, basically playing. They can go out no. there 162 games, play nine innings every game. It's fine. They can handle it. But it's but the person that's different than that is, is Ryan Braun. Every time Ryan Braun does something <laughs> good, everyone's going to say, well, he's just going to get hurt. And that's because Brewers fans are so used to and are conditioned to every single time that there's a pitcher in the organization, they think that they're going to get hurt every time. You know, Ben Sheets got hurt. Giovanni Gallardo got bad. Like, every time somebody was supposed to come in and be a good pitcher for the Brewers. Hey, like, man, it goes a lot further back than that. You have uh, Teddy Higuera. You have Juan Nieves. You know, I mean, I, there are other guys as well. So Nick, it is Nick, it is Nick, Nick, Nick Newgebauer. I'm going back deeper than that. It is ingrained in this organization's DNA to basically, once you have a nice thing on the mound, once, once you think you got a pitcher, yeah, it's it's gonna break. Cal Eldred. Going back to the previous point, I looked up Josh Hader's usage from last year in Jeff April D'Amico. May. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Uh, in April, March last year, he threw eighteen innings. In May, he threw fifteen innings. So he was already at oh, completely 30, backed off. He was at thirty three. <laughs> he was at thirty three innings after two months, and then from that point on, he threw eight point two in June. 12 in July, 13 in August, and 14 in September, October. They never is, pushed him back up to those heights. They used him heavy early when Corey Knable got hurt. And, well, 15, 14, 13, I don't think are, like, significantly 18, different. 18, no, no, no. 
18 no, no, was no. the first. Yeah, after, no, after April. again, again, though, you're missing the entire point of what I was saying. In that entire April and May, he was used on back-to-back days once. They generally did a good job of making sure he didn't. Yeah. Right. Innings innings do not necessarily matter as much. So if you look at that, uh, in the entire time in which the vast majority of those, he went multiple innings, he threw over 35 pitches twice, three times in the, in the entire two months. And so to be able to say, focus on innings and not recognize the fact he is getting regular rest, he is not being overworked in terms of like throwing – you know, he's not throwing 20 pitches an inning and being overworked like he's K-Rod. Like, there's there's a difference between saying, looking at the innings and then being able to go into those things. And the, the reason why he wasn't using July very much, the All-Star break existed. And the other reason was, like, they just didn't play very well in June for a little bit. And so they didn't use him when they weren't winning. Like, there's a difference between what's going on. And then if you look at what happened in august and september again they didn't use him on back-to-back days well they used him one time august 29th and august 30th they used him on back-to-back days and like i don't understand just because he threw innings doesn't he's a pitcher he's supposed to throw innings it's about being able to make sure that those are not stressful innings and to make sure he gets regular rest in between his outings and they've always shown that they're willing to do that they have been pretty good about it yes and you have to remember, he had an inning in there where he threw nine pitches and got three strikeouts. Yes, the immaculate inning. So I, yeah, you I know, woke up to that bit he's, of news. Yeah, so I mean, he's he's had an appearance this year where strikeouts, which are usually a little bit more high intensity for pitchers, like he was able to do it with about as if it was as efficient as you could be. So well, well there was also the whole thing of he was just throwing fastballs, where that turned into a whole thing too. Well, and I, then th- hold everybody on. I think that goes to he threw a that, slider. Yeah, that goes to I think Hater right now, at his age and his ability to throw his fastball, can basically rely on that. He's probably going to hit a speed bump at some point in his this season but also in his career where he has to adjust and that that slider has to become more of a legit pitch that he's using regularly. well it has been a legit pitch in the past too it's just he doesn't need it at the moment so he's not using it yeah but, but i'm just saying like there's going to be a constant evolution and josh hater is going to get hit and everybody's going to freak out and because you know what the other thing is josh hater does give up hard contact when he gives up contact right when those pitches are not in the right location because he likes to pitch up in the zone or just above the zone and when guys do tee off on that like we saw with against the marlins last year late in the season i mean guys will hit bombs off of him just when it works very well for them but our fear should be the moment that his strikeout rate drops well yeah but that's literally it because you know if you're a guy who gives up hard contact when people do make contact uh, that could be dangerous. But again, we'll see how his career evolves. As of right now, I, you know, let's just enjoy that he's able to go out there and, and get the stops the Brewers need. Um, okay, so it's a good uh, series against Cincinnati. Chicago, we've had some like crazy scores to start out this uh, series. We're recording early, so we don't know the Sunday result yet. No. Um, but we had a 13 to 10 game and then a 8 to 4 or 8, eight to 14 loss. On Saturday so a couple things that we're dealing with here is um, in the Friday game Woodruff looked really good Brandon Woodruff looked really good through three innings and then the wheels fell off in the fourth and that was much like Corbin Burns starts as well he's had 
good starts to games, and then especially that first one, wasn't he nine nine up, nine down with nine strikeouts or something? Well, Bur- was, Burns was giving up a little bit more. He was giving up some hits with a little bit more regularity because I think he gave up the home run to Hayward in like the second. Right. Well, he's extremely in the zone, so that's going to happen. So um, I guess, are there any takeaways from the young pitchers uh, in, in those two games, JP? Because again... W- Peralta looked very mediocre in his first start, and then he went out and you know had his 11 strikeout game and basically won him a game in Cincinnati. Um, Burns and Woodruff have both you know looked good for short stints, and then the wheels have fallen off. Um, are we just seeing growing pains for young pitchers at the moment? Yeah, I would imagine so. I mean, but to Ryan's point too, for Burns, it was it was the reason that I said I thought Woodruff was the better pick for this year in terms of ERA is that Burns. Burns is is in the zone a lot. He's going to give up hard contact. He's going to give up homers. We've seen that. Um, he's going to have to learn how to both throw strikes and and learn when to not throw strikes and and to learn what pitches work well in the zone. And and he also shows at times the difference between control and command. Right? Like he's got great control. He can throw tons and tons of strikes. Sometimes his command in the zone is is spotty. And so he's going to have to learn how to do those sorts of things. Right now, he's got you know about five and a half home home runs per nine inning, and obviously it won't stay that high. So he's he's got he's missing bats. He's he's throwing strikes. He's not going to give up that many homers over the course of the year. He's still getting some good ground ball. Right, like he'll be he'll be just fine. But I do think that you're right. It's they've all shown flashes of being really good, and they've all shown you know the the growing pains that we knew existed before the season started and it's going to just be a matter of staying patient and working through them but i mean if they can go through through growing pains and you know we can be 7 and 2 let's do it yeah i mean the thing with burns that's very interesting is you have such extreme strikeout numbers 18 strikeouts four walks in 10 innings that is a great indicator of a guy who knows what he's doing but six home runs is just it's also it's it's unsustainable giving up that many home runs is not something that's going to continue i don't know chase anderson's trying to prove you wrong well yeah chase anderson doesn't have quite the stuff that corbin burns does no but that's why it's interesting to compare burns and peralta because peralta's you know got pretty good stuff as well but he doesn't sit in the zone like burns does no and that's why i've actually i've i've said that i think burns might be a lot like michael pineda like Michael Pineda is somebody who's got really good stuff. He's in the zone a ton. Um, he goes through stretches where he's, you know, at actually the beginning of this year, he just looks great. Um, but he's going to give up hard contact. He's going to give up homers. Just you can't live in the zone so much. And Phil Hughes is another guy that kind of had problems with that. Like if you throw tons and tons of strikes, um, guys will be able to center on it eventually. You can't just live on missing bats in the zone you know the batters are too good you've got to be able to get guys to chase too and and he'll learn i'm confident that he'll learn that uh and it's a better problem to have in my opinion than like the opposite but um but yeah i think it's just he's got to kind of figure out when to be in the zone when not to be in the zone what pitches guys will chase in which positions how to be able to work his fastball in all quadrants instead of just worrying about throwing his fastball for strikes and i i think he'll learn it i think he's got two good catchers behind the plate that can kind of help him work through it but uh but yeah i mean i though i do agree with i do agree with ryan that like even though like the chase anderson shout is like legit 
Chase Anderson doesn't have a five and a half no, <laughs> home I, run per I, nine, right? And I realize that when I say, yeah. said that as well. You just mean like generalized home run issues. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the thing too I'm wondering with Burns, and in no way I've been the biggest advocate of getting him into the rotation and giving him a long leash there. I do wonder within the context of this season if there are still issues where he's having trouble. We see this as a repeated issue where he is starting well and then having trouble sustaining the second and third time through the order. If they won't down the stretch, assuming they're in a, a pennant race, assuming things are going well and perhaps people like Jimmy Nelson are back and you're starting to have other options to start, if they don't say, hey, Corbin, go back to the bullpen for the stretch run, I, I think it's a possibility. I don't know. I think we're, we're way far away from that point, but it's something that could potentially happen down the road. We, we do have a question on Twitter from BFarv4Goat. <laughs> that's fantastic. Uh, and that's the number four. So I don't think he's trying to like advocate for Brett Favre to be the greatest. He's just saying he was number four and also the greatest. Right. Yes. Those things together. Yeah. Not, this yeah. isn't like a campaign. Like he's campaigning <laughs> for Brett Favre to be the greatest. But be, be far for goat. He, he did ask, is Byrne the lo- logical choice to go back to the pen if and when Jimmy Nelson comes back? So you're saying he is. No, I'm saying that it's a possibility down the road, but I think you need to give... I'm shocked that Ryan is hedging on this You right need now. to give him leash. You, he, you have to give him leash. You can't... Because at this point, if you decide, hey, we've, we've seen this problem crop up, and you get this for a few more starts, and then you decide you're going to pull the plug on it, I think at that point you're almost for sure relegating him to the bullpen long term and you're saying this him as a starter is not in the cards for us and i think it's way way too early to actually do that i think this is a long-term potential item not a short-term thing jp how long is the leash on the young starters i would assume woodruff is just there he's gonna work through his growing pains pretty much regardless do Peralta and Burns have a shorter leash? Is there a possibility that they could get yanked at any moment? I I don't know, to be honest. Like, I don't... My my immediate reaction was that Peralta would just be the one sent down to AAA whenever, whenever Nelson was ready, just because he's kind of um, a little bit more of the wild card. He's somebody that doesn't necessarily fit in the bullpen all that much. And... I get a little bit nervous in terms of sending guys to the bullpen and expecting them eventually to still be starters. Like that's not necessarily something that I want to get into because at some point it becomes a slippery slope in terms of like, when do you get away from it? If Burns is successful as in the bullpen, like at what point do you pull him out of it? Um, So I think that what they'll try to do is keep guys stretched out because the thing that you don't want to do is move Burns to the, to the bullpen, somebody gets hurt, and then you have to move him back to the starting rotation, and then you have to worry about him not, you know, pitching every five days um, and getting out of a, uh, a getting out of a rhythm. So for me, I think you try to keep guys in as long as you can. I would imagine Nelson is his rehab outings go as long as they need to, and if somebody needs to hit the IL, then you know they'll look at it. Um, yeah, I think they're just gonna. They're going to push, they're going to kick that can down the road as long as they possibly can, and then they'll try to make a decision when they have to. 
Yeah. Okay. So moving on, the bullpen has been interesting for the Brewers, to say the least. Yeah. Uh, aside from Hater, um, I mean, there have been some decent performances in there. There have been. Um, Chase Anderson came in after Woodruff started to struggle against the Cubs. He gave up a home run early, but he had a really good three innings aside from that. So he gave up one run in three innings. Right. Um, and then also you've had some pretty good longer outings from Junior Guerra. And Alex Claudio has been reasonable. Matt Albers, for the most part, has been solid, not the home run machine that we'd seen yeah, nobody's, at the end of the season. Nobody's last year. been great, but when you've gotten to the back of the bullpen, um, you know, like Taylor Williams seems to have really struggled. Uh, I guess, how quickly do the Brewers start making moves in the bullpen? Uh, you have Hauser, you have Patrika that you can call up. Do they, do they start ro- making that rotation? Do they start racking up those frequent flyer miles right now? Or do they kind of give these guys a little bit of a chance to figure it out at the moment? Well, as people are listening, we get to the 10-day mark of the season, which is when those guys who had been optioned down can start coming back up. So I would imagine we're going to see some sort of shuffle happening in the not-too-distant future. Probably we may already know this by the time people are listening to this. Uh, exactly what that's going to be, I don't know. It's it's far too early to say what those guys are doing in the minor leagues means anything. So you just... I mean, they just played their first games this week. Right, Thursday was opening night, so they're just getting started right now. So I, I was, was going to say, I think for me... I would imagine that, I, I mean, to be frank, I think Taylor Williams probably is going to be the first guy who gets sent down. Um, and I imagine that Patrico will get a look. I, As much as I understand, you know, looking at somebody like Hauser, the fact that he's in the rotation uh, leads me to believe he probably won't be the first person called up. I think that he's their starting depth. And I know that Chase Anderson is their starting depth, too, but. You know, they have to be able to do those things as well. Um, I actually think, you know, to be honest, I think for the most part, the the bullpen's been OK. Uh, I think that that Matt Albers looks like, you know, he's he's being able to miss some bats again, which was a big issue for him last year. And, yeah, he's, you know, he gave up a homer, but that, that's life. Um, I expect Chase Anderson to kind of he's kind of the guy we thought he was Claudio is going to miss more bats than we've seen thus far, but he's, you know, he's been decent. Um, Alex, Alex Wilson had a, you know, a dreadful outing against the Cubs, but before that I thought he actually looked pretty good. Yeah. He had so, a couple of pretty solid appearances before, yeah, you including know. he was the one who got the save in the absence of hater on uh, Wednesday afternoon. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. this, this Cub series is really coloring our view of the bullpen at the moment. Well, yeah, and it's hard not to watching them just get pounded inning in, inning out when they're out there. It's but then again, when you look at the teams that they've faced so far, you're looking at three very good lineups that they faced. And granted, the Cincinnati lineup isn't as good as it's going to be over the course of the season, but still, the Cardinals and Cubs, those are two of what the best five lineups in the the National League. Yeah, and we we'll get to it. They have the freaking Dodgers coming up. Well, their their April is absolutely hellish. It so is. it is. I have the, I have the schedule up in front of me, and I'm just thinking, Christ, if they get through with the 500 record, they're in a pretty darn good position for the rest of the season. Well, and that's the huge advantage of starting off seven and two is now they're in a position where they can lose some games. Stop. And still no, not no, 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 be no. We don't. No, they scenario. have to win all of them. <laughs> win all of the games, JP. Right? That's that's the goal. You win all of the games all the time. Well. And you win all of the one-run games. That's, I, that's I hear what, that's, that's sustainable. <laughs> well, no. 
as as my buddy Dan Wade Dan Wade said on on Twitter, it's the year the Brewers twenty nineteen is fuck Pythagoras. <laughs> That's what it's going to be. They're they're absolutely going to win every single one run game. Well, didn't they kind of do that last season? Oh, I don't think so. They could have. I thought that um, I thought last year with the way they used that bullpen, they they kind of, you know, gave them a, a gave the Pythag a good shellacking. I mean, they might have. I I don't know a hundred percent. I'm just looking it up right now. Yeah, I mean, they were thirty three and nineteen in one run games last year, but I mean, their their bullpen was actually you know quite good as well. So you would expect them to win more one run games. It's not like one run games should be. That's a tough phrase to say. Uh, it's not like those should be, you know, split exactly 50, 50 down the middle, right? Like talent does play into those things as well. So, well, especially in the end game situations, which they can match up with just about anybody that way. Yeah. Or especially last year, they could, uh, moving on. Uh, we're seeing the power of this lineup. They're hitting a lot of home runs, but one guy who's gotten off to a pretty slow start at the moment is Jesus Aguilar. Um, do we, at, at any point in the near future, see Eric Thames getting into more of just a straight platoon with Aguilar if he struggles? We should note, I just saw the lineup for Sunday's game. It is going to be Thames starting at first base sure, in place of Aguilar, and I mean it was, makes it, perfect sense. And it was hard for the first two games they did face lefties with Quintana and Hamels. Which, even if you're going to go with a platoon between Aguilar and Thames, Thames isn't going to be the lineup for those two games. Right. So, so, But are we going to start seeing more of a straight platoon with those two guys? I don't think it'll be a straight platoon. I think you're going to still continue to see Thames be worked in in the outfield, as he was on Friday night. I know he was out there some on Friday night. I don't know if he's been out in other games, but he, he was at least on Friday night. So you're going to see him in the lineup, but I wouldn't expect to see Jesus Aguilar you know, sitting against even a majority of righties at this point, I think you still have to give him a run to make sure he's getting his opportunities to get hot because he can carry the team when he is going. So you have to still get him in there. I mean, he carried, you give me a look, but he's carried the team through the first half last season in May and June. I don't think he carried the team. Offensively, he carried, I mean, Yelich was fine. Kane was fine. Those guys were not having you know, massive seasons. He was a big part of the reason why that offense got them through the was months. doing enough was doing. Well, he was, he had a, a month where he put up like a 1200 OPS. Yeah. Like, but he's also Jesus Aguilar. I mean, the idea that Jesus Aguilar is the guy who's going to like carry your offense. Like that's something you should expect in any way is a little absurd. Well, no, it's, you don't expect it for a season, but he's good enough to carry it for a time. And you want to make sure that, He's getting the opportunity to get hot and do that over a given period of time. JP, are we going to see Thames's role grow here, or is he, is he going to be more significant than we've seen so far? I think you might see him get a little bit more playing time if he's if he stays hot. I mean, I just think that we've seen it with Council in the past. Like sometimes you just do need to just ride the hot bat. I mean, if he's going to be if he's going to hit his way into the lineup, he's going to hit his way into the lineup. Like that's life. But I'm not as worried about Aguilar yet uh, just because, to be honest, I don't think he's looked great. Um, he still is, he does seem like he is, uh, he's not seeing breaking stuff all that well, but he's not striking out a ton. And he is still using the right, he still is using right center. 
Um, he's actually hit some balls quite hard to center field and right center that have just kind of been right to, to um, right to outfielders. And if, if you start to see him get into a place in which his strikeout rate starts to approach 30% and he's not walking, then you might see some underlying issues of like real decline. And then Eric Thames might get more time. But at the same time, like if Eric Thames is going to hit, you know, if he's going to have a, a 900 slugging percentage, like, yeah, you're going to find ways to get his to get his bat in the lineup. And if that means Jesus Aguilar comes off the bench, that means he comes off the bench. I think it's it's funny because um, I think Travis Shaw has been just as bad. And Travis Shaw is like nobody really questions the fact that he's not going to come in. I mean, they're both hitting what? you know, about 250, 270, or uh, 150, 175 or so. Yeah, they're both taking some walks. They're not hitting for any power, but... Um, yeah, but Shaw's hit a home run. No, he, well, okay, great. Well, but, Shaw also has seven walks. That's he's He's got a 185 batting average, but oh, 371 on base percentage. So Jesus, that's kind Jesus, of propping him up right now. Jesus Aguilar has a 17% walk rate. Travis Shaw has a twenty percent walk rate. There's there's no real difference between twenty is bigger rates. than seventeen. So obviously Travis Shaw that's is wh- doing more. That's why I said no significant, no real difference between the two. Yes, one starts with the two, the other starts with a one. I see a big significant difference there. I uh, will I will now take your point that Orlando Arcia is absolutely tearing the cover off the ball because he's hitting two twenty two rather than one ninety. Well, I was going <laughs> to ask about Arcia because he continues to be brutal, but. He has the ability to hit a home run at the right time. He he had the uh, big home run against Cincinnati, and then he continues to just his cub trolling is immaculate. You know I what? Mean, it's goddamn immaculate. I'm ready to put him on the the Brewers Walk of Fame for trolling the Cubs. Like he doesn't need to do anything but just keep on hitting against the Cubs, and I'm fine with it. It's making Cub fans go insane, and it's so wonderful. I know. It's just it's glorious. I know. My my. I keep licking my phone. <laughs> because I'm trying to like get their digital tears <laughs> because it's just so wonderful. But <laughs> that wasn't weird at all, Steve. Oh man. Anything oh, look, as, as long as you don't got the Aaron Ampera's picture up <laughs> while you're licking your phone, <laughs> we're good. No, I gotta find a, a Narcio one like that, I guess. But um <laughs> anyways. I guess what does Arcia need to do? Uh, we do have a question from on, on Patreon from PB Brew Crew. He asks if Arcia can hit fifteen to twenty home runs this year, would that be enough to keep him in the lineup, even if he's like a two thirty hitter and just doesn't get on base? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, if, if it, I was gonna say if he's gonna hit two thirty, like they'll they'll work with that. Um, with that great. with that it, power though. Yeah, I mean, yeah, for sure. I think that they'll work with that. I think the one. The piece that really concerns me about Orlando Arcia, and yeah, he's hit a couple of homers, and it's funny because, you know, Rock on the telecast talks about this all the time. He's like, you know, if, you, if you're a right-handed pitch, a hitter and you use right field, that, you know, means good things. Orlando Until Orlando Arcia can actually show that he can pull the ball, I'm not that, like, all of his hits are to center or right. Every single one of them. Even pitches in the inner part of the plate, he's shooting to the right hand because either he's late or he's like bailing out or he's just like just trying to shoot everything over there which is fine i guess but like if he's going to really hit for power uh if he's going to if he's going to try to get to that 20 20 homer uh plateau that pb crew is talking about there he's going to have to show that he can pull the ball and they're going to and he's going to have to show pitchers that he can pull the ball too otherwise they're going to absolutely just pound him on the inner part of the plate and he's going to get just tied up um there are still some pretty big issues there in terms of his swing right now 
in terms of his ability to hit for power to opposite field, that's great. He's just got to be able to do that at the exact same time that he can show that he can pull the ball. Um, and if he can start doing that, if he can hit, you know, 225 to 230 and he can, you know, hit 15 to 20 homers and he can have a butt like elite defense at, at, at shortstop with the rest of their lineup. Yeah, they'll work with that all day. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking that we're going to have to wait and see what happens with him over the course of a season because we've seen good Arcia, we've seen bad Arcia. We just have to wait and see what continues to evolve there. It's it's very hard at this point to know where this is headed. But if so. his if his approach and his mechanics continue to just be a disaster, and they are, they they still are. I haven't seen him hardly swing the bat at he, all. So. It's still well, like JP was just talking about. The only thing he does is he tries to shoot stuff opposite field, which for a guy that I think everybody expected to hit. You know, that was one of his tools that he was carrying coming up through the system. I'm not saying he was going to be an elite hitter, but he was going to be a pretty, you know, league average hitter, which was valuable for a shortstop. And oh, he, yeah. looks, he looks like he has no clue up there still. I mean, the issue is what does the production end up being over the course of the long haul? And we're still... That's fine, but when you see what he's doing at the plate, when you're actually like watching what so, it looks like... I'm at a disadvantage because I've right. not no, seen no, what no, he's well, actually no, no, doing no, at the plate. But, I just look so at the like, numbers and I see it's fine. It's not... Well, it, well, first of all, it's not fine. Um, like, it's... There are still some pretty big issues with the numbers, but um, uh, outside of the two homers, right? But uh, I think... Number one was one of my favorite things that like Ryan hasn't seen him whatsoever and is still willing to defend him makes me happy. Um, and uh, and and the second the second piece is how good does Mauricio Dubon need to be at AAA for people to start for the team or for us to start saying maybe he needs to get quite a bit of time at shortstop. I think it that discussion doesn't happen until at least May. But well, no, no, no. I'm asking how good does he need to be, not when. Oh, I mean, Dubon needs to show that he can actually strike the ball with authority as well, because that's not been necessarily his calling card. Well, but he hold did on. it at Colorado Springs. Dubon, Dubon needs to hit though, because as we talked about in our, our preview episode, his glove is not as good as Arcia's. He's not the right. defender that Arcia is. Right. right. And so he has a higher bar to clear. He does have some versatility and can get onto the major league roster playing second base, playing more of a utility role. But to actually supplant Arcia as an everyday shortstop, that's a discussion for a few months from now that's not something we're looking at in the short term yeah it's going to be interesting to kind of watch that but obviously arcia has to show something else than just a couple of timely home runs that that kind of placates everyone at the moment well yeah Look, he he is going to have to start pulling the ball more if that's really an issue then because the, the home run i, saw I don't was see a, how with that swing he how he's it over the right field and i don't well that that's what the cubs were doing with their home runs yeah, well, that's God. Those were those were a couple garbage home runs on Saturday. Well, it's also both. I was gonna say like RC also benefited from playing a bandbox in Cincy. Yeah, right. Like, like it's not it. He barely got it over the Cincy wall, which is not great. Um, but like, 
the other thing to, that I want to mention too, and this is something that Ryan and I will probably talk about more in the minor league podcast, but um, in terms of thinking about triple a, uh, one thing that we had talked about a lot on the minor league pod, and, and of course, if you want to hear more about it, Steve will tell you how to do it at the end of the podcast. But, uh, but Tyrone Taylor had gotten a lot of publicity because of his power last year. But like a lot of the scouting reports, particularly from Fangraphs, were saying that he changed his swing pretty significantly, and he was hitting for a lot more power. He's somebody that has quite good defense. Uh, he he's already hit two long balls. Uh, in the first three games, which if you're trying to look at what's happening down in AAA and thinking about what are places on the roster that you could start to see some guys take a step forward uh, and actually contribute to the big league squad, I would say that Dubon is the number one place. And you guys can, well, I think here is number one. But, uh, but, but Dubon is like kind of the guy that people maybe aren't paying enough attention to that they should pay attention to. I think that, I think that Tyrone Taylor could actually be on this squad by the end of the year. If he, if he shows that like his power is legit, he actually, and actually I think Gamble's actually been okay in center field when he's shown there, but I think that he's the guy that can really, you know, carve out a fourth outfielder role who can play center field a little bit too. I was going to say Gamble's off to something of a slow start at the plate, 143, 200, 214. So he's not really gotten it going yet. But if you were, yeah, I, I agree with your Tyron Taylor take. I think both Dubon and Taylor are guys that can come up without having to necessarily be in the lineup every day. I don't think they're bringing Hura up unless they feel like, we have a spot that we're going to put him in most days. Like they're not just yeah. going to bring him yeah, up to no. sit on the bench. And I think get everybody here comes up to be an impact player. Right, they Hira, bring here up because they're putting him in every day, and they expect him to like significantly alter the lineup. Whereas so. Taylor and and Dubon could both come up to be utility guys. You know, extra infielders, extra outfielders. Yeah. So Steve, how have you thought that Mustakis has looked at second base? I, I'm I'm asking you because Brian. Was you know, I was going to kind of bring this up because Mustakis got a couple starts at third base, and and Perez, mm-hmm. I think, was starting at second. Um, it's it has me a little nervous. I don't think he's looked great. You know, um, at second I, base, like that's it. Yeah, I, it's I've noticed it. Okay, I don't expect him to be great, but I've noticed that he's out there, and I think that's kind of a bad sign. Yeah, I. Because I actually think he's looked okay. Like I think he's looked better than I expected him to. He's made he's made plays. You know, ground balls and stuff coming to him are fine. But anything that requires him to go over to second base and make a turn, mm-hmm. I think he's really struggled with. And I'm not blaming Mustakis on that. It's not a yeah. natural thing for him because even coming up when we say he played shortstop, that's still. It's a very not, different angle. Yeah, that's a different angle. He's still not being trained for making that turn at second base. So, yeah, uh, you know, it's at this point, I think it's still very much an experiment phase. Well, and I think like it's he, worth a shout, too, to talk about the fact that the fact we really didn't notice it with Travis Shaw last year, that Shaw was pretty seamless and was able to do that and, and work around second base without it feeling too awkward. That's a big credit to Shaw for his ability to do that because that is not an easy thing to do, and he really did make it look pretty seamless. And maybe that got us a little bit overconfident in Mustakas' ability to just make the transition because we saw it with Shaw, and it was so smooth and so easy. Well, I think for me, Mustakas 
he needs those reps. And so like, even though they're awkward, like he still needs those and he needs to do it consistently in order to, to build that muscle memory and to allow him to get to the point in which he can, we can feel a little bit more confident with it. Uh, I'm not necessarily, I don't necessarily agree quite as much that Travis Shaw was as good at second base. I think there was so much expectation that he was going to be an absolute dumpster fire at second base that the fact that he wasn't like everybody just was like, Oh, this, I, this isn't just a train wreck every single time something happens at second base. This, this isn't, you know, this isn't terrible. I actually think he was he was a lot like he is at third base. Like, he doesn't have huge range, but when he has an opportunity to get to a ball, he'll get there. And and I feel confident that when Travis Shaw can get to a ball, he's going to be able to convert it. Um, I think Moustakis, for me, has... I don't feel nervous when a ball is hit to second base, and I think he just needs more reps at working around second. But I, I take your point. I think that it has looked awkward, but I think he needs more opportunities to look awkward, if that makes more sense. Have yeah, there I, been significant double play issues? Because I've seen some of that discussion about he hadn't turned to double play, but I didn't know if that meant he just hadn't really had opportunities. Uh, or... they missed, they've missed a couple opportunities to turn it. Like he's had awkward throws. They're just kind of off target and stuff like that. But he's I, turned one now, I, right? It, it, but, you know, it's hard to say because there hasn't been like a large number of opportunities. So obviously one bad throw is going to stick out when you only have, yeah. you know, two chances or something. Yeah, I was going to say, I think I only remember one. That doesn't mean there's more, but there's only one that sticks out in my mind that he didn't that he failed to turn but he's had he, I, I think there are some balls that like you know he's turned but it's still he doesn't look great he doesn't look comfortable at second trying to get that ball out yeah for sure and i think he had I one that he great. i think he had one that he dropped like yes, he dropped I, on the transfer yeah but i do think the one thing to recognize too is if they didn't have the confidence if they didn't have the confidence that he'd be able to learn it uh travis Shaw would be at second base right now yeah, that's true, because there's no reason not to have gone back to that unless, yeah, it, clearly Shaw was willing also. Yeah, but, you know, obviously Shaw, long term, they still see a third base. They have Moustakis well, on a one-year deal. Well, he's a better so, third base defender than Moustakis is, to be frank. I don't I mean, know if that's true. That's I, yeah. I If you look at like the if you look at the numbers, um, yeah. but that's basically UZR and UZR is basically trash so but it's, it's not it's, just ucr it's it's the other stuff too he, yeah but, Shaw's but the, pretty solid but the only the only place there's a big difference is ucr um i was gonna say they i think they're pretty similar yeah i think they're okay i mean i would rather have shot third base like me but i think they're 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 pretty close um i don't yeah i was gonna say something i I lost it. <laughs> this episode's been a relative dumpster fire. Well, no, no I was. Gonna, I was. No, no I, I was mean gonna, just the, all the technical issues and. No, I was going to say something, and then I, and then I needed to change my train of thought for whatever you. Oh, I remember what I was going to say. Okay, pick it up. So one of the other things that actually came up this week, and I was anxious to get both of your thoughts on it. Uh, Travis Shaw says he's open for business in terms of an extension. Oh and yeah, the Brewers are like one of the only teams that haven't signed extensions. Well, well weird. But I, I'd like really to tell the to. Brewers I'm open to an extension if they want to offer one to me, right, and it can be under a million dollars a year. I'll still probably well, accept something. But what I was going to say is, is he somebody that you would want to extend if it if it was like an extra year to pass his free agency year? And and I know that Ryan will say if there were like player options that'd be great, but I'm not or like team options they'd be great. I'm yeah, not, Ryan's a contract I, honk I'm, here, so I'm not I'm not worried I'm not worried about team options. I'm just saying if they were guaranteed money contracts past 
his free agency date. Is that something that you would want to explore? Yeah, I, I would explore it just because I don't think they have like a natural option coming up to play third base at the moment. Like, even if we can, even if if we could still dream on on Ursig coming up and being a contributor at third base, I don't think we can plan on that at the moment. One, I think that on the back end of the contract, Shaw can quite possibly move over to first base and be still a plus bat at first base, or at least carry the position offensively. So I think that you can you can do that, and he still has a place he can move on the defensive spectrum where the bat doesn't seem totally out of place, right? I, I was gonna say because my overarching thought when I saw that is, I like Tra- I like Travis Shaw as a player. Um, I think he actually fits really well in the clubhouse too, which might you know help his chances to stick with the Brewers. Um, guys who I view as platoon bats are not like super high on the guys that I want to extend. Like, I just don't, I don't think that the team nor I feel comfortable having Shaw face lefties. No, but it is the short side of the platoon. I think you can get away with more. It it is the short side of the platoon, but like how many guys can you sign on the waiver wire that are good on the short side of the platoon? Like G-Man Choi is now like starting on the short side of the platoon or unless he's a right-hander and I forget, but like G-Man Choi is, is starting broad side of the platoon. Shaw's the the heavy side of the platoon, not the short side of the platoon. Oh, well I, whatever you can find left-handed first baseman pretty much on the waiver wire whenever you want. Yeah, you can. I mean, it. I, what I'm saying is there's room for him to move over there. It doesn't necessarily mean that it has to go that direction. I'm wait, wait, wait. But you, you think Aguilar needs... That bad. You need to, you think Aguilar just needs more time, and he's going to be a bat that carries this team. We're talking about three, four years down the road. I don't necessarily think Jesus Aguilar is a guy that... Aren't they roughly the same three, age? Three, four years down the road. Aren't they roughly the same age? Yeah, and Jesus Aguilar is bigger, Steve. He's, so? He's significantly bigger. So, but like... If you are seeing right now, I think that's some bullshit. <laughs> if you're seeing right now that G Man Choi was basically, you know, he was kind of a a one to two win guy last year with the Rays. He's already being their their main first baseman against righties, and like the Brewers just gave up that for not nothing because they got Brad Miller. <laughs> but that that was good for like a week or two. But it was still, for a week or two. But it's still, you know, for me, every single year we see, you know, the Matt Adamses, we see guys like Ike Davis, we see guys that are regularly available to be the strong side of the platoon if you're a first baseman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand that. I'm not saying that this is like the ideal. I'm saying that it's a bailout point that he doesn't become, if he has to move off of third base because he's just not defensively that good anymore, you could move him over to first base and he's a playable bat there and it's okay. And you're not necessarily looking at like, oh God, we've just like lost a a ton of money on a useless contract. He has places he can go where he can still have some value. That's fine, but then you're locking up roster spots. Okay, you lock, you are locking up and, a roster, and so spot. you can't go out and take a chance on somebody else that could be more productive. Than right, and I'm saying Trump. that, and I'm saying that if if it's an optional contract, that that doesn't necessarily make something that like I would pursue that with the back with like in my in the back of my head being like, well, if he turns out to not be good enough, then may, you know he can do this thing that I could get for nothing. Well, what are we talking about here? So Travis Shaw. No, has, no, no, no. We're not getting no, no, into this. I'm, not, I'm shutting this down right now. I do not, <laughs> not want to get worried. into contract numbers. I was gonna, it is. I was gonna say because too like, damn early in the like, season. Because you're gonna say like, is it this much money? And I'm gonna say I don't care. 
Like I don't I don't know what the I don't know what the money yeah. is. Like we're not even working with like dollars per war anymore either. So. Okay, so the Brewers are going out for their first swing on the uh, West Coast this week. Yeah, they've we two got, West Coast swings yeah, early got, this year. Yeah, we got the Angels and then the Dodgers, and it's tough that that Angels series. They don't even have like a day game in there. They're all nine oh seven starts here. Oh, you're talking about tough from a perspective of you trying to like see any of it. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. Well, the Dodgers are going to be tough regardless. I mean, there's no secret there. But as far as anybody seeing any of these games, they're going to be pretty darn late. Yeah, I mean, work it out. So, so be ready for that. Um, yeah, they have three against uh, the Angels, and then they're in LA for three before they get a break. Then the following week, they they host the the Dodgers for four games. On and then the they're weekend. back on the West Coast at the end of the month, right? Mm, no, or maybe into May. No, they go to Colorado at the end of the month. Look, so, I, anyways, I, I, I was going to say the Dodgers, the Dodgers are ridiculous right now. They really are. It's not the slow start that they had last season. No, it's not the slow start. And they've got injuries on the pitching staff. But right now, their their bats are so good. I mean, the Brewers I mean, bats are quite good, too. So they have I'm, the it's, Dodgers. I'm not, not the Dodgers. It, it, I'm, we're right. And I'm not saying that, like, I'm just saying that they're good. I'm not saying in comparison to anyone. In comparison to everyone, they're very good. I mean, like they've got Alex Verdugo, who's who's hitting like 500 with a couple of homers, who is like their fifth outfielder. Yeah, so it it, it continues to be a tough stretch because even after the Dodgers, they come back play St. Louis, and then they have the Dodgers again. So um, it'll be interesting when we reconvene next week for this. Yeah, to see where they're at. It's you know, there's kind of a survival mode right now. Get through April and just be, you know, around 500, and then. I think the schedule softens up a bit in May. Oh, with uh, with Washington, uh, the Cubs, Philadelphia, and Atlanta. Oh God! <laughs> you know what? Say, it's the it, National League. There's no soft part of it. Like, I was gonna say just, it. It doesn't get softer until, like, statistically, it doesn't get softer until until June. That's when they see like the Marlins. That's when they'll see uh, some of those types of hey, teams. An actual um, bad team, Marlins, Giants, like actual poor operations. Yeah, I was so. gonna say. We I are going want- long, and we still have this interview to get to, and I wanted yeah. to give JP a, a chance to to preview it. So you talked with Trenny uh, earlier in the week. It was actually during the Freddie Peralta start, so there, there was. are a bunch of mentions in there. It was, yeah. So I uh, had an opportunity to talk to Trenny about kind of like her career in general, but more about her, her memories of it turned into talking a lot about her memories of following the the 2000 or like covering the 2008 team. Uh, a lot of kind of behind the scenes stuff. Uh, she talks a lot about, you know, how, frankly, how good a guys they were. Um, like her connection with a lot of players, the way that kind of Jason Kendall set the groundwork for her coming from from Pittsburgh to to Milwaukee, and kind of him saying, you know, Trenny's a good person. Make sure you treat her right like all this stuff. And then she said she has a lot of friends on the team still. Her and John Axford are really close. Um, but then we also had a little bit of an opportunity to talk about what it's like to be a woman in, in sports broadcasting, what what she views um, as uh, kind of important in that realm and, and what we can do to continue to make opportunities available for women in sports broadcasting and what you know she kind of has to deal with um, and women in, in sports media have to deal with kind of in like in a day-to-day life. Um, which isn't necessarily pretty, but is important to talk about. So I enjoyed it. Uh, and and make sure, you know, if you're not following her on Twitter, make sure you do that because she still follows the Brewers extremely closely. Because I think one of the things that came out for this interview or through the interview is uh, she's a massive Brewers fan, has been for years, but just an absolutely massive Brewers fan still. 
And so she's going to talk about brewers whenever she has a chance. So make sure you follow her on Twitter and give her a shout if you want to talk some brewer stuff. Yeah, so here's JP's interview with Trenny Kuznarek. We are very pleased to, I guess, welcome uh, a familiar face, or at least maybe a f- familiar voice at this point, to uh, back to the, the Brewers blogosphere or like podcast world. And so we're very pleased to have Trini Kuznarek here on the podcast. So Trini, thanks for, thanks for making some time. I know you're extremely busy, but thanks for coming on the podcast. Anytime I can talk Brewers, I'm excited to do it. I know you said you're we're recording on God, what is today Wednesday afternoon, so it is Wednesday. So you're yeah. watching uh, Freddie Peralta deal in Cincinnati at the moment. He is dealing. It's awesome, um, especially after that first start where I was like, "Oh boy, we got a lot of young starting pitchers. We're kind of finding their way, and are they going to serve us a bunch of home runs?" Of course, factoring in the fact that they were taking on the Cardinals, who are, um, you know, have Paul Goldschmidt, uh, who all he does is, it seems, uh, hit for power. Uh, but it's been nice. It's nice to see Freddie Peralta put together the kind of start that I think the Brewers have always expected him to be able to uh, put together. I'm excited about this team. I'd love to come back again in October like I did last year uh, for playoff baseball. Yeah, it'd be great. And so I don't. I know that a lot of Brewers fans remember when you were covering uh, covering the Brewers, whether it was for FSN Wisconsin or whether it was, you know, for WTMJ or ESPN. But before that, you were you were with the like covering the Pirates, basically, correct? Yeah. So from 2002 to 2007, I was the Pirates. Um, like the, what what I did for the Brewers, I did for the Pirates. I did pregame, in game, and post game hosting and reporting for the Pirates. Um, and at the time, they were terrible. Um, right around the time that the Brewers kind of started to to creep, you know, like 06, 07, when they started to sort of creep back towards the top, the, the Pirates were terrible. Um, so I basically uh, had to cover an awful team for five years. But it was really great because, one, it, it made me, I think, a better baseball reporter because it's a lot harder to find storylines and find things to talk about and ways to ask questions if a team is losing. It kind of becomes a little easier when a team is winning, um, because everyone's just happier to talk about things. Um, and a lot of pi- pirates who played in the league moved around a lot because they were always getting like journeyman guys or they would maybe draft a guy but not be able to sign him to a long-term deal. So there were a lot of players that I covered with the pirates who then moved on to other teams um, who I who became really valuable resources for me when I worked both for the Brewers and at MLB Network. Yeah, and then so you had an opportunity to... Uh, come back to Milwaukee, I suppose, because uh, I believe you went. Uh, believe you went to Marquette, correct? Yep, I went to Marquette. Then I worked okay. in Eau Claire. Then I worked at Channel Fifty Eight. Then I went to Pittsburgh. Then I came back and worked for um, for the Brewers. And then I went to MLB Network. And then I came back and worked for TMJ. <laughs> yeah. And then I left for Boston. It's almost seven years. Like no, it is seven. It's been seven years. So it was seven years this September. Yes, two thousand twelve. Yes, seven years this September. Um, and. So now I actually am sort of settled somewhere for like a long period of time. Well, and you've been, I believe the last three Olympics too, you've been kind of traveling around and doing some things outside of Boston as well. Yeah, it's been great. Like the great thing about working for NBC Sports is that we're aligned with big NBC Sports. 
So we're kind of like, it's a little different than the Fox regionals, which are, I feel a little bit more independent. We're um, a, a little more synergized with, um, I don't think that's a word, by the way, it might be. Um, there's more synergy between us and the mothership in New York. Um, and we're also pretty close to New York, right? So it's like an hour plane, like 45 minute plane ride, three and a half hour train ride. Um, so I've had the ability to like go back and forth, do stuff in New York, and then they've used me for the last few months, which has been really, really amazing. Um, getting to travel internationally, which I love to do, but also just covering Olympic sports and being part of such a massive production. Um, I w- my goal was always to just do one Olympics. So have been a- you know, haven't been able to do three. It's been literally like a dream come true. Yeah, it's been it's been excellent because I know that a lot of Brewers fans have continued to kind of uh, follow you and pay attention and to what you've been doing in Boston. But what was you know, what was it like, I guess, transitioning from Pittsburgh to a team that, as you said, frankly, wasn't very good to a team that was on the rise? And it, it was a hometown team coming back to, to Milwaukee. And what was it like to cover the Brewers? Uh, it was amazing. I mean, to this day, I will tell people that the greatest year of my career um, was when I covered the Brewers in 2008 because one, I just, I'd been in Pittsburgh for five years and just sort of had kind of hit a plateau, I think professionally there, which is why I decided to come back to Milwaukee and have the opportunity to do the same job but with my hometown team and the team that quite honestly is the whole reason I love sports. Like I don't just sort of like the Brewers, the Brewers for me rank way above the Packers. They even rank above Marquette and I love Marquette basketball. I you know, went to school there. I paid a lot of money to go to school there out of my own pocket. So I have a special affinity for all things Marquette. Um, but the Brewers are the reason I love sports. Uh, I remember I was five years old in 1982 when they went to the World Series and lost to, to the Cardinals. And my parents like loved to tell the story about how it was like inconsolable. And I hated the Cardinals. I mean, hate the Cardinals ever since. Uh, I remember going to the parade that we threw for a team that lost and like sitting on my dad's shoulders and seeing Raleigh Fingers and Robin Young and Cecil Cooper. And I mean, even when I was like six or seven years old, I could even I think as young as five, I could tell you like the starting nine. I knew baseball. I loved it. And I, you know, and even when they, you know, they had obviously ebbs and flows in the eighties and nineties, but you know, going to games with my dad, I remember being a young kid and my parents were, we didn't have a ton of money growing up. We were pretty middle class and we would like, um, we would save, this is so healthy. We would save like Kool-Aid, um, like the packets for Kool-Aid and you could take them and go to Kool-Aid like they would have a Kool-Aid kids opener and that's where we would go get like a $5 general admission ticket and sit upstairs. And I was in the, I was in the right center field bleachers the night that Robin Yount hit his 3000th hit. And we had gone like three nights in a row. Um, you know, we, one night we stood underneath the bleachers while it was pouring rain in a rain delay because my dad was not going to let us miss that moment. Um, so like for me, the Brewers were my first love. Baseball was always my first love. So to come back and cover that team that year and to really get to know the guys like they they treated me so well um yeah um, you know jason kendall had come over from the pirates you know people may not even remember that but they had brought him over to sort of be a veteran presence behind the plate work with some of those younger pitchers and you know he set the tone right away i remember one of the pr guys telling me that he told everybody in the clubhouse like treat her well respect her i worked with her in pittsburgh she's a good kid um and that set the tone for the rest of the year. I mean, to be able to, you know, watch Ryan Braun and J.J. Hardy and Corey Hart and Prince Fielder blossom into the players that they are now and the people that they are and get to know their families, it just, it, it, there's, it's, it's unmatched. It really is, in my career, unmatched. 
Um, I still have a picture on my refrigerator here in Boston of me interviewing CeCe Sabathia um, after the Brewers clinched the wild card on the last day of 08. And that's great. And so, like, was was it the... I, I think a lot of people remember from from that year, you know, game 162. I remember I was, I was playing in a golf tournament at that time, and, like, basically everybody kind of... Uh, instead of paying attention to all the scores coming in, it was playing in Wisconsin and um, everybody was like huddled around the TVs trying to, to watch what was happening. And so like, was that one of the top memories either, whether it was the interview with, with CC Sabathia or like the game and the experience more generally? I mean, every, I mean, I think of like, you know, actual in-game experiences I mean, Ryan Braun hitting that three run home run, obviously it was against the Cubs. It was an extra big deal. Um, you know, being on the field and waiting with that anticipation, I believe it was like the Marlins and the Mets game that we had to watch. And it was, I think the Marlins had to lose. What, I forget which team had to lose, but one of them had to lose, one of them had to win. And then they went and then the entire, everybody in the entire stadium, you know, all 40 plus thousand people waiting on the edge of their seats. I get, I have chills right now retelling the story, watching that other game on the big screen at Miller Park and waiting for it to be finished. And then the champagne, I mean, I had to throw out my, the entire outfit I wore that day because it was covered in like this disgusting pink champagne that they had gotten to like spray all over everybody and having a beer on the field with rock and bill or rock and Brian. Um, and like my brother was there because, um, they had had someone walk around like sort of security with me. So I was able to have my younger brother there with me. It just, it was so amazing. But I also remember like going away, having Craig council or Craig council, <laughs> Craig, um, why I can't think of Craig's last name right now, um, go away on the road trip for me and do the in-game stuff. Um, and, and I stayed back and walking down Brady Street um, during a game and going to watch the game at a bar and having Brady Street like erupt anytime the Brewers scored a run or struck somebody out. I mean, the entire city was so starved for a good baseball team. We all rallied around that 08 team that I'm not sure anything, I mean, short of winning a world series, I'm not sure anything can really capture the excitement of that year. Yeah, it was, it was pretty incredible. And I know that, you know, you're, you've kind of talked about getting to know the players' families and getting to really be connected with all the players when, when you were covering them in 2008. Um, One of the things I think, I think about a lot these days is like, you know, people fans get so much access to players whether to social media or radio shows and interviews and different things like that but i still feel that a lot of the time players aren't necessarily appreciated as people um as much as they are you know just kind of players that end up going on or stat lines or whatever they may be um from from covering the team so in depth and being with them so much is there you know what do you think that like fans need to remember about fans or like what do you think they not realize about kind of a a baseball team or like players over the course of an entire season and just about you know bringing the humanity back to the players and what they have to go through over a grind yeah maybe it's because i'm a little bit older now but i think about this a lot more there are two things one these guys are human they're not robots um and they're just as upset as you are when they don't perform up to expectations um, but also, we don't know what's going on at home. We don't know about a guy who has a sick parent or who lost an aunt or an uncle or who's going through a divorce or a tough time with a child or their marriage. I mean, these guys, it, 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 you can't just shut that stuff off. 
And, you know, I do a lot of mental health advocacy and the number of, of guys who have reached out privately to me to ask my advice on certain things or to tell me their story because they don't feel comfortable telling it to anybody else, but they wanted to get it off their chest. You would be amazed at how many guys deal with anxiety and depression because there's so much pressure on them. Um, and the spotlight, I think, is so much, it's, it's even, I would say, 10 times harsher in 2019 than it was in 2008. You know, we forget that 2008, I, I, you know, we, I was still in MySpace. That was still a thing in 2008. <laughs> and we weren't writers, isn't that crazy? We, you know, Twitter was there, but it wasn't as ubiquitous as it is now. And these guys, it's like every time they open their social media, even if they pitched a great game or, you know, had a hit for the cycle or something in there that's telling them how terrible they are um, and how they wish, that, you know, that they weren't on the team or they would get traded or even worse that they would, you know, die or take their own lives. And, you know, it, it, it's I, I don't understand how people can look at these guys. And I understand that there is a barrier between us. There's a literal barrier of the fencing if you're at the ballpark or it being two dimensional being on television versus in person. But these are three dimensional, real living, breathing human beings with children and wives and girlfriends and moms and dads. And it just really troubles me when I see a guy make a mistake or not, you know, perform up to his ability and the abuse that they have to take online. Um, and that goes for anyone in the public sphere. I mean, I, you know, any, I deal with it. I'm sure you deal with it. You know, um, Craig Deshaun, who I called Craig Council 10 minutes ago, <laughs> he deals with it. Sophia Minner. I mean, everybody does, right? Um, it's, it, but it's just, I, I wish people would stop and think for a second. How would I want to be treated if I did this for a living? And I'm sorry, but this is the thing that it, it ticks me off the most. Is, oh, let's make a lot of money. Well, guess what? Money, contrary to what we believe, doesn't buy happiness. It doesn't buy peace of mind. Anything for a lot of these guys, sometimes it causes more problems. By the way, Freddie Peralta is still in the game, and we are in the bottom of the eighth inning. So nice. his pitch count's pretty good. Nice. <laughs> well, no, because we were – so uh, in our season preview – like our prop bets, we did a competition for for the listeners, and one of the things was one of the questions was, "Is a starting pitcher for the Brewers going to throw a, a complete game this year?" And it's pretty split. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I, it would. I don't know what's his pitch. If he's only had eighty six pitches, I would think that this will probably be a twenty. Eighty six pitches in the eighth, only a second start of the year. My guess is that this will be the end of the rope for him. You know, I want, I haven't seen a no hitter since what, 1983? Was that, was it 83 or 86, Juan Davis? I think it was 86. I can't believe I can't. It, it had, I think it was 86. Yeah. Yes, it was 86 because, because Bill, Bill Schroeder was behind the plate for yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's been decades since the Brewers have had a no hitter. They've been no hit, but I'd love to see a no hitter. But I'll take a World Series person. They win the World Series. I will cry like a baby. Yeah. World Series would be incredible. Um, and so like, I guess we need to let you, you go here, but the last point I wanted to touch on was, you know, you're talking about a lot of the, a lot of the abuse that fans can get, but a lot of the abuse that, you know, people who cover the games, people who are on TV, just public figures more generally in the mental health aspects that go along with it. But, uh, you know, I know, you know, this better than anybody better than I do anything like this, but like women end up having to bear, a disproportional brunt of the online harassment that ends up coming from 
uh, sports fans and just things on on social media more generally. But you know, what do you think about the state of of women in sports media? Uh, and it's there has been a lot more attention paid to it. Do you think that there has been improvement over your your time in in the in the industry? And what do you think needs to happen to continue to give women more advocacy and more uh, space within the industry more generally? I mean, I think we have um, come, we've made some strides, right? I mean, I don't know if 10 or 15 years ago I would be hosting a talk show in the Boston market, right? Um, and obviously not the uh, fast food chain, but the actual uh, television market of Boston. Um, I don't know that I would be the front-facing person with a male co-host on a show that is largely opinion-driven. Not me reading a teleprompter, not me you know, talking about stories that my producer dictates that I talk about, right? So I think in that sense, we've seen some, we've seen some growth. We've seen women, we've seen more women doing play-by-play. We've seen more women getting um, opportunity to be analysts. But at the end of the day, there are still so few examples. And I think the perfect like, anecdote for this is um, a girl that I'm friends with here in Boston texted me during the NCAA tournament and she said, can I ask you a question? She says, why is it that I only see women on the sidelines? To me, it seems like sex is a master's opportunity. And it was such an astute point because, you know, seeing other women get, you know, um, earn positions and have bigger roles in broadcasts, I don't notice it as much, but to have someone who, quite honestly, she's not a sports fan. She had the games on because, her, quite frankly, her husband was watching them, so they were on, and that's what she noticed. She noticed a, a woman who is a new mom with son. My son's going to grow up. She's like, my son's going to grow up thinking that all a woman can do on TV is be a sideline reporter because that seems to be the most prominent position for you guys. So, to me, that was an indication that we haven't come far enough. We need more women. We need more Beth Mullins in the world. We need more uh, Doris Burks. We need more um, Jessica Mendoza. We need women who are in positions that have historically been reserved for men. Because women know, okay, I can be a news anchor. I can be a sports center anchor. And that's a great job. There's no disrespect to that. You know, there's no disrespect to what I do. Um, being more of a reporter, host, anchor. But I always tell people that I never dreamt of being a sports reporter when I was a kid because, one, we didn't have cables. So I couldn't see ESPN, so there, I didn't see any females. But the other problem was there weren't females anywhere else, at least not prominently placed. I never thought it was a possibility. Like, it never dawned on me to think that I could be a sports reporter, even though I grew up loving sports, because I didn't think that women could do that. Now women you know, aren't shy of going into the industry, but the number of women who come in and say, well, I want to be a sideline reporter. Well, frankly, you got to be something more than that if you really want longevity in this industry and you should strive for more, you know? And again, not to diminish the sideline reporter position, but there are so many positions out there that women just feel like even if they're qualified, they're not going to get a fair shake at them because there aren't women who came before them and many are afraid to be that first. Because you look at the, the scrutiny Adjust Mendoza is under, I mean, there's not a lot of women with, yeah, that want to put themselves through the abuse she has to take every single time she goes on air. Um, and so I think it dissuades some women. So, you know, I think we need to make some strides there where we're genuinely creating opportunities for women to rise to the ranks 
of play-by-play and analyst positions. And we desperately need more women in upper management positions because I think um, right now, still a lot of women, a lot of times when they're, you know, brought in for auditions, it's, oh, well, she has a lot of Instagram followers and she's really pretty and she did sidelines. That's the qualifications for someone um, where, to be quite honest, not, I mean, maybe this is reverse sexism if there is such a thing, but I think if we had some, you know, if we had more women in power making hiring decisions, we might look a little more than skin deep. Yeah, I think that's, I think all of that is... Sorry, I went off on kind of a rant there. No, it's fine. It, this is, we go on rants like once a week for an hour, so more than willing right, to have have, a, have somebody else come on and take the mic so they don't have to listen to us and say some things that are better than what we we take, like to say. So um, I guess bringing it back home to the Brewers in Wisconsin before we let you go and get your meeting, what was, like, who was your... I. I, it's okay if you want to answer more than one person, but who was your favorite person to cover during your time covering the Brewers? Oh, I, I, that's, that is hard. Um, let's see. So my favorite person to cover, I love covering Prince. I did. I, there was something about him. He was so just, you didn't get to see who Prince Fielder really was on the field. He was guarded, um, I think, in large part because what he, you know, everything that he dealt with with his dad and that very fractured relationship. And he grew up in a clubhouse to the point where I, I think it made him hesitant to open himself up to any more criticism. But if you got Prince away from the camera, once you got to know him and saw him with his boys, saw him with his sons and his family and his wife. I, I really enjoyed getting to know Prince. I thought he was thoughtful and kind and he could be really funny. But um, I also really loved, and these guys are all pretty much from the OA team, I loved covering Corey Hart and J.J. Hardy because, I mean, I used to joke with those two. They became like like little, I mean, they're not little brothers. They're like four or five years younger than me. There's not that big of an age difference. We were about the same age and I was covering the team. But, you know, we would have so much fun going back and forth with one another. And like, especially JJ, every once in a while, JJ would like, you know, I got to ask you something. And it was like this kind of off-color question that like he'd want to know about like something with his girlfriend or something else, like a present to buy someone or just a random question. And he would ask me, and it was such a really... I know this kind of gets overused, but it was really sort of a brother-sister-like relationship. And to this day, you know, I know he's not in the league anymore, but even just a couple of years ago when he was still playing and he was with the Baltimore Orioles, like every time he came to town and I had a chance to see him, I said hi to him and it was wonderful and it was like no time had passed and he hadn't changed and it was so great. And then... I really, in the 2011 season, I really um, enjoyed covering John Axford, and he ended up becoming someone who I still consider a very dear friend. Um, we talk still on a fairly consistent basis. We see each other anytime the Jays come to town, or and he's at the Oakland A's, and they would come here. Um, I just, he, I, I, I really, we've developed such a great friendship because we have a lot in common, like movies and music and books and sort of art and like things that are like really abstract and away from baseball. But that was a really fun re- like relationship to sort of develop because not only do we talk about baseball, but you know, we could go out for a drink here when they're in town and talk for four hours and baseball will never come up, which is, you know, doesn't happen very often. So I, you know, 
those four guys I think will always stand out to me as people when I see them, like my face lights up. I get so excited to see them again. And just one other fun little story, like my favorite old school guy is definitely Robin Yout because he was a guy that I grew up watching. And I was just telling Sophia Minert the story the other day uh, when I covered the team in 08 and um, Ned Yost was, was, was let go. That's another guy I love, by the way. I think he's so tremendous. Um, Ned Yost was fired. Dale Sam took over. Robin Yount became the bench coach. And we were at Wrigley Field. And Robin had a media availability in the dugout. And uh, um, he looked at me and asked him a question. He looked at me and he goes, well, Trent, and KP, I'm not kidding you. Like, I, I was like like a little kid on Christmas. Like, I turned around. I will never forget. I turned around my photographer. I was like, oh, and I thought, oh, my God. He called me Trent. Like, my, you know, the, this guy that I had worshipped as a little kid and loved watching and saw him, you know, go into the Hall of Fame and become this iconic baseball player. Not only did he know my name, but, like, he knew it unprompted and he knew what my nickname was. And that's another guy, like, every time I see him, he never forgets, never for, you know, never forgets that I, that I covered the team and, and all that. And so I'd have to throw Ryan Braun in there, too. Now I'm just telling everyone. Someone's just going to think that I love, like, every guy I ever covered on the team. But I think it was just such a special. Those years were so special. The fact that I got to cover the team in 08 and 11 when they had so many special guys. Like, I ran into Ryan Braun this um, summer at a Whole Foods, and we talked for, like, 15 minutes about his kids and his wife and his mom and his dad and room. And, again, nothing about baseball, like, everything about life. And I just – I really genuinely treasure those moments and I feel so lucky that I was able to cover my hometown team and in two years in which they had so much success. Like the Brewers will always be like family, I think, for me. And and I'm just putting it out there right now. For some reason, the Red Sox and the Brewers would meet in the World Series. It's Brewers unequivocally, not even a question. I would root for them 100 times out of 100. I think that's a perfect place to wrap it up. And we will quote you on that. Now that I listed every single guy in the roster that I'm friends with, I like that guy, that guy, that guy, that guy. They're all wonderful. Well, I think if if the Brewers do face the, the Red Sox, though, the Brewers do bring in really good, solid human beings as well as good players. They do. And I mean, I, something we've talked a lot about. Uh, this past like year and a half on the podcast is like you can tell that not only Craig Council but the the Brewers as a whole really value the clubhouse experience. They really value bringing people in who fit, who can develop a good culture amongst you know the team as a whole. They don't want they they want to bring in people that are that are good, genuine people that want to be able to create yeah. an environment that's healthy for everyone. Yeah. They do. I think it. I, I think it's a great organization, and I, I think Mark has done a tremendous job. Um, you know, doing the best he can with the resources he has um, and making it a profitable team, but also one that is competitive. Um, and I just am holding out hope that I get to see a World Series in my lifetime. Well, you and me both. So we'll we'll end there. And thank you again for coming on the podcast. I know we've we've been trying to connect. Thanks for, for having me. Absolutely. Yes. Hopefully, maybe maybe we can talk. Uh, maybe we can like do it in person in October when I come back to watch it postseason game. Sounds perfect. That's going to do it for this week's show. Uh, don't forget, you can join our Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash tailgate. Patrons at the M&B and Ball and Glove levels will receive the monthly minor league extra podcast. And any idea when that's coming out, guys? No, we're going to work through some technical stuff to see if uh, our material or our equipment is uh, 
are ready and willing to to record a minor league extra podcast but we will make sure that it's out and actually to, to tell you the truth if we wait an extra week to actually get a good solid week and a half of game stuff might actually be beneficial for our talk so we're not like like clarifying absolutely or uh, uh kind of hedging on everything saying it's been like four games but so give us an opportunity to talk a little bit more subst- substantively yeah otherwise you just talk about a triple uh, a start that the team had against clayton kershaw <laughs> that was about it for big news so which and was it, awesome it was yeah so uh don't forget you can submit questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or through our facebook page for milwaukee's tailgate baseball podcast obviously follow us on twitter at mke tailgate don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on apple Podcasts, spotify stitcher we're on overcast podcast wherever you listen to podcasts Uh, You can also leave reviews, and that helps people find the podcast. So thanks for listening, and look for us again next week on Milwaukee's Tailgate.